Welcome to the Grace Under Pressure podcast, an evidence-based podcast for the nurse anesthesia community. What makes Grace Under Pressure different is that it's created by and for CRNAs and SRNAs. I exclusively interview CRNA experts and deliver topics based on your preferences. Thanks for listening. Welcome to the Grace Under Pressure podcast, a podcast for nurse anesthetists, and today we'll be discussing the transition of CRNA programs from master's to doctorally prepared. And our special guest today is Dr. Thomas Polaria. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Grace. And Dr. Polaria, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your career thus far and what you've done for our you know, profession and everything? Sure, um, absolutely. So um, I have been a practicing CRNA for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a hard number for me to admit to. However, uh, when I look back on all of those 20 years, I'm very happy with um, what this profession has done for me and uh, similarly what I believe that I brought to this profession. So right now in my current role I am the program director and an assistant professor with the Rutgers Nurse Anesthesia Program in Newark, New Jersey. I have been the program director for a little over three years now. Uh, I'm actually one of the founding faculty members for the program back in 2004. Um, Since that time, I also had a wonderful opportunity to introduce CRNA practice at one of our local uh, larger uh, medical centers. So I took on an additional role as chief, thinking it was temporary, but as I think you already have learned how life goes, you never really know the road ahead of you. So I also still serve in the function of a chief CRNA. Um, in my spare time, I guess, and I've been uh, able to successfully integrate CRNA practice into two separate medical centers in the area. So um, both of my roles I'm very, very proud of, and I'm very um, uh, satisfied. Uh, I have a huge job satisfaction, I guess, rate. Uh, Hopefully that is demonstrated by how I interact on a daily basis with all of my nurse anesthesia residents. Absolutely. Um, So I think you are a great guest for today because you kind of have this perspective clinical, you also have the educator role, and you also have a very big role within the profession. Um, So as I already said, we're discussing the transition from MSN to DMP. So there was a mandate. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about why this is happening, why these transitions are now required? Um, and what it's going to do to our profession. Sure. So um, it goes back to actually when I became an educator, and and by no means was I aware of this at the time, Um, but back in 2004, the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, or we like to just refer to it simply as the AACN, put out their position statement on practice doctorate. Uh, degrees in nursing. And really what they were saying was the course of nursing education really should start to reflect our education up to that point and beyond and really pushing uh, the boundaries that existed at that point for advanced nursing practice education and how it can uh, morph to the doctoral level. So um, that really was the start Uh, of all of it way way back then. And how it applied to the nurse anesthesia profession is kind of an organic process. And I know that you know this, Grace, Mm -hmm. Um, and I hope that most of our listeners are also aware that uh, when you're looking at advanced practice roles, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists, nurse anesthetists, nurse midwives, we have prided ourselves on being on the uh, kind of, I guess, lead Uh, role in 
advancing our profession and, and the overall um, standing for advanced practice nurses in this country. Mm -hmm. So we were one of the first specialties to embrace this AACN position statement and really set a timeline for it, which is where uh, we came up with uh, through the Council on Accreditation, of course, uh, our governing body for nurse education, uh, nurse anesthesia educational programs, that we were going to get to that point by 2022. And I can tell you at the time, that seemed like a long time away, but, um, you know, we're literally two years away. Yes. So how many nurse anesthesia programs actually exist today in the United States? on the website it said 121 there are I, and you know data is always changing yes exactly. so the last data that I was able to um, retrieve was from this past December okay there are currently 121 accredited COA accredited nurse anesthesia programs in the country okay and out of those there are currently 85. Mm -hmm. So I think the more important number is there are 36 programs remaining yep. that are still either hopefully in the process yeah. or about to commence with the process of transitioning to the doctoral degree. Okay. So as this profession increases and there's more job growth, um, I think it was predicted, I looked at a study that was like 2014 predicted for projections for 2024 that there was going to be a 16% increase. So we're going to be graduating more CRNAs, obviously. Um, as more of those individuals graduate with their DMP, um, how do you think that's going to change practice? How do you think that's going to change? Um, what difference does well, this make? Well, you know, I think that I could answer that question in two ways. There's okay. a theoretic change. Mm -hmm. And then there is the crystal ball factor, mm -hmm. which I don't think that we've seen yet, but mm -hmm. I, I have an opinion on that. Mm -hmm. I think the theoretic difference is based upon the underlying essentials for why we progressed to a mandate uh, for providing a doctoral level education for nurse anesthesia residents. And just, just for a second there, I, I want to kind of look at that because that is how we should see an impact. And that is, I mean, essentially DMP curriculum has two main components. One is what are the DNP essentials, mm -hmm. which of course were not present at the master's level. And then of course, number two would be those specialty competencies or specialized content, which is where the anesthesia part comes in. So if you, and I just want to quickly, it usually bores people, but I don't think this is something that people are aware of. So right. when you're asked, what's the difference? Right. I think you really do have to go back to the theoretical essentials yeah. and there are eight of them I'm going to kind of rattle them off fast right. um, there's uh, the essential one is scientific underpinnings mm -hmm. for practice so again that evidence-based okay. quality organizational and systems leadership for quality improvement clinical scholarship analytical methods for evidence-based practice information systems technology patient care technology healthcare policy advocacy interprofessional collaboration, improving patient uh, and population health outcomes, mm -hmm. uh, clinical prevention and population health for improving uh, our nation's health, and of course the overall advanced nursing practice um, theory. Mm -hmm. And all of those, and I, just, I know I just rattle off a lot, but when you think about it and you just went through that process, mm -hmm. everything that I just mentioned is something that you're not only evaluated mm -hmm. uh, against mm -hmm. or uh, in line with, but it's all of the components 
of what your DNP project encompassed and right. what the goal is for the DNP project to elevate us to that doctoral right. level. So I, I, that's that's the theory answer to what the difference is. Okay. Now, crystal ball, yeah. I'm really not seeing it right now, mm -hmm. but I'm in an area of the country where um, right now we are the only program that yeah. is producing doctorally prepared um, okay. CRNAs. Right. And I have not, and on, from my clinical perspective mm -hmm. or as a chief, have seen any type of change other than there is already, I think it might just be a perceived difference on mm -hmm. my part, of acceptance, more acceptance uh, for the C-suite leaders in our medical center partners for uh, tapping into us as a resource because we are at that doctoral level. Right. And I hope that that, my, my hope is, and hopefully what I can use my my chief position for is to continue to push that forward as well. Right. But I, I frankly, I've, I've just seen the beginnings of it. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, also it's because this again, since it's the only program in the area, the only doctorally prepared CRNAs that we have right now are from our first cohorts. Yeah. They've only been in practice for about six months. Right. There's a lot to see in the future. For our CRNAs that are already um, graduated practicing with master's degrees, often, you know, I hear the discussion in the clinical setting, should I go back to school, should I get my DMP, are there certain individuals that you just feel, you know, if you want to go into education or teaching or, you know, are there certain paths that those individuals should be more heavily considering that degree um, or not? Should everyone be considering sure. that, what do you think? So, um, unfortunately, that's, again, not that's another sim unknown. simple right. answer. It really is. And I think it really does come down to the lived experience. Mm -hmm. And, again, I'm either, I'm either fortunate or cursed, mm -hmm. depending on your uh, point of view, yeah. uh, as to what I'm about to tell you. Because I do <laughs> see two different perspectives. So, as an educator, yeah. if someone comes to me and says, what do you think? Yeah. My answer as an educator is, absolutely. Okay. Go do it. Yeah. You will absolutely elevate yourself. If I have someone who I have an established relationship with, yeah. I get a little bit deeper into the weeds with my answer, mm -hmm. which is, listen, I signed up for it because I felt that I needed to because yeah. I wanted to stay in education. Right. Because I'm sure our listeners already know mm -hmm. you cannot be an educator in a doctoral program if you don't have a doctoral degree. Right. So I knew that that was uh, a main passion of mine, so I knew I wanted mm -hmm. to stay in it. Mm -hmm. But I tell them, I got into it for this reason, mm -hmm. and guess what? I learned so much. Mm -hmm. And was the process difficult? Absolutely. But at the end of it, I really got out a lot more than I ever expected. I have to agree. Um, I think what I tell people now is, depending on how well I know them, mm -hmm. of course, because yeah. I would never want to dissuade anyone, because again, as the educator, go do it. Yeah. As, the clin as the clinician, Yeah. I really feel that right now I have not seen in this area mm -hmm. that it offers a lot of advantages okay. unless you are looking to go into something in addition to clinical practice. And by no means do would I ever want to use the word just because our clinical practitioners, our clinical frontline, mm -hmm. or why I can be an educator, number one, why I can be a chief, that's mm -hmm. number two. Yeah. That being said, I don't know if right now mm -hmm. you need a doctoral degree if you want to stay as a expert clinician in anesthesia. My advice to people who come to me, and they do come to me on a regular basis, mm -hmm. is number one, do you want to teach? Yeah. Yes, go back. 
Do you want to become a chief? Do you want to lead a committee? Do you want to get involved with your clinical partners like a medical center or a surgery center? Yeah. If it's yes to those, Yep, then the answer is yes again. If you can't give me yes to either number one or number two, then I would say eh, maybe it isn't the right time yet. Mm -hmm. um, you also have to look at the financial impact. Right. Um, and you also have to look at the time. I mean, unfortunately, even though a master's curriculum is is as rigorous as they came, mm -hmm. there's still a lot that when you go for a completion program, it, it takes up a lot of time. And you know, we've all lived the life of sacrifice for mm -hmm. the first go round. Right. Luckily for you, there will only be one go round. It's all wrapped up in one package. Right. But you know, that's, <laughs> that's a second sacrifice that I'm very careful as to what I what advice I give. Right. Because I, I mean, I lived it. I did go back again. And it's not easy. Yeah. Part two of this question, DNP versus DNAP. Mm-hmm. Who should be considering which degree? If they know they want to go back to school, maybe they want to take a, a more, you know, business route or administrative route versus clinical or education route. Yes. You know, that's a tough question. Yeah. And you're talking to a DNP. Yeah. Prepared CRNA. So I think that you're going to get a bit of a different mm -hmm. response okay. depending upon who's sitting in the chair next to you. Good to know. My exposure to that mm -hmm. is really third person, what I've heard from colleagues. Yeah. And also my lived experience as a DNP prepared CRNA in my area, which is the East Coast, and mm -hmm. I think our listeners know what that means. Mm -hmm. uh, lots, lots and lots of regulations. Yes. I will say that in this area, in my opinion, mm -hmm. a DNAP requires more explanation mm. as to what my degree is, okay. where in this area, a DNP is most likely also what your CNO or your CFO or any other advanced practice nurse in a leadership role, whether on a unit, anywhere in the hospital, of course, as a CNO of a hospital, they ha they possess either that or a PhD. Right. So when you're at the table with the DNAP, it requires some explanation. Yeah. And I find that the less I have to explain, the easier it's going to be for me. I agree. All right. Um, so just talking a little bit more generally about uh, RNAP or nurse anesthesia programs at large, uh, the average class size, or the class size can range, I read online, from eight people up to 100 people. Average is 12 to 25, which is exactly where we sit, mm -hmm. 24 people per class. Um, and obviously, applicants pool is getting bigger and bigger every year. Yes. Um, but traditionally, and when I was applying to schools, everyone talked about these programs as front-loaded or integrated. Yes. Um, is that going to change as these programs transition into DMP? Are they going to have to be front-loaded just to fit in the DMP portion? Or how is that going to work, do you think? I, well, I think, well, I know how we did it. Okay. Um, and we were always, uh, at the master's level, mm -hmm. we were always what's called an integrated program. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm very familiar. I graduated from a front-loaded program, okay. so I do have kind of, at the master's level, uh, an experience with both. Mm -hmm. um, frankly, at the master's level, I found the integrated approach to be a little, no, maybe a lot more user-friendly. Yeah. I feel that when you are in the classroom and maybe the next day, you have hands-on in the clinical arena. I think that promotes learning a yeah. little more, uh, in a little more of an effective manner than what I experienced, which is I learned everything up front, 
And, you know, I'm, I'm learning about, I don't know, an anesthesia machine. Mm -hmm. And then a couple semesters later, I actually get to see one. Right. So there was a little bit of a disconnect. Yeah. When we transitioned to the doctoral degree, we already had, in my opinion, and of course I'm biased, mm -hmm. we already had a great foundation mm -hmm. uh, of integration. Mm -hmm. So what we ended up doing in a nutshell was maybe having... I would say maybe an additional semester up front mm -hmm. with just didactics. We still are not considered a front-loaded program, right. but we really focused on getting some of those underpinnings out of the way right away, like a clinical scholarship course. Right. Um, and actually, the way that it was planned, that's what we wanted. Mm -hmm. And serendipitously, what turned out was, it was also great for the anesthesia portion of it too, right. because on day one, in this program, they're already thinking about what their project can be. Yep. So they're already immersing themselves on their own mm -hmm. in what is anesthesia? What right. did you just get yourselves into? So as far as all the other programs, you would probably, I'm sure you looked up all this data. Mm -hmm. I do not know what the breakdown of front-loaded and integrated is. But just from my experience, I, I think what we're doing is, is effective. Right, and so for our listeners, we do a full year of didactic, uh, you know, partially anesthesia classes, partially these core classes for the DMP curriculum. Then we start into a part-time clinical rotation for uh, two kind of our trimester layout, essentially. Uh, and then we go to full-time clinical for the rest of the right. 36 months. And also, it, what people always talk about, and I'm just as bad because I just did it with you, we talk about the start. Mm -hmm. But at the finish, because mm -hmm. we are a truly integrated program, you have didactic courses up to and including yes. what you're now in, which last is your semester. last semester. That's exactly. Right. So we graduated 11 cohorts of master, uh, master prepared, masters prepared uh, CRNAs. Mm -hmm. And the last cohort, we used to graduate in December. Mm -hmm. So our last master's cohort graduated in December of 2016. Right. Then during the transition, we had a year in which we went more than 12 months with a graduating class. When we transitioned, then we graduated in May. So our first, as you said, was this, um, sorry, May. last May of 2018. Perfect. Okay, yeah. so the master's curriculum was 28 months total. Now we've transitioned into a 36-month uh, curriculum. Correct. And what courses changed? What did you kind of have to turn into something else? What did you have to cut? And were there hard decisions to make along that process? Um, that's a very good question. Um, I, I want to start with what did we have to cut? Mm -hmm. We didn't cut anything. Oh, and that was, that was a huge challenge. Mm -hmm. At that time, and again, we were one of the first 25 to 28 programs to, to transition. And other programs that were transitioning at the time, there was kind of a sentiment that we're going to have to cut back a little bit on clinical time. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we never wanted to actually put down on paper because, I mean, that that's the cornerstone of what a CRNA does is right. their clinical practice. And, you know, how do you introduce this, all of these doctoral DNP essentials and not compromise that? And I'm, I'm very happy to say that we, we, we did not give any of that up. What did we have to add? Well, again, I think we can focus on what those practice doctorate standards are. So going beyond what I already probably bored you to tears with, with the AACN or CCNE for that matter, um, the practice doctorate through Council on Accreditation, we have to look at conducting institutions. What's the faculty? These are all standards for accreditation. Okay. Um, we have to look at 
our students, the graduates, what's the curriculum, what, what tell us about the clinical sites, what are the policies in place, how are you evaluating everything that you're doing. I literally just rattled off what the self-study is for accreditation, which we actually just went through re-accreditation and I'm very proud to say this is when you get a drum roll. Um, we got the <laughs> maximum 10 years, so I'm very, very, very proud of that. So those are the standards that have to be focused on and those standards were pretty similar from the master standards. But, of course, they increased in complexity yeah. uh, because of the doctoral degree. So for our transition, and I, I guess I can maybe just give you an example, uh, the quick answer is, yes, we went, we increased in time. Mm -hmm. We actually increased a bit or at minimum stayed the same in clinical hours mm -hmm. because if you think about it, we maintained an integrated program outline. We increased semesters, so therefore, there's even more opportunity for clinical experience. This is, yeah. I was really a huge proponent of that. I never wanted to see the clinical be cut back. Are other programs cutting back their clinical? Um, you would have to ask the other programs okay. that. Um, rumors, but uh, I don't know yes, I think facts. there's a lot of rumors out there. I think really what that would take is, and I'm now years away from what I did compare what we were going to do okay. uh, to some of the programs that already went through it. Mm -hmm. And I will say there was a smattering of programs that did do that. Now, are they still like that? I, I wouldn't know. Okay. And that's where, you know, we compare notes at our, at our annual meeting, which is now, uh, it's actually um, coming up. It's called the Assembly of Didactic and Clinical Educators. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where we compare notes. So I, I don't know the answer to that. I would hope that clinical experience has not been compromised. Mm -hmm. um, that's always something that our physician colleagues try to hold up as a negative comparison right. to what our requirements are as compared to theirs mm -hmm. to enter clinical practice. So I would like to think that that isn't being compromised. I think for us with the curriculum going from master's to, to doctoral uh, level, with the anesthesia specific mm -hmm. uh, curriculum items, we actually were already there. Good. Uh, so like for example, the, the minimum contact hours required for physiology or pathophysiology for the doctoral level is 120. Okay. And we were already at 165 for, for the master's degree. Exactly. I mean, of course, pharmacology mm -hmm. for the doctoral level. Now, remember, this is AACN doctoral essentials. So we, again, as we always do, we fall outside of the lines that are written in the book. So it's a minimum of 90. Mm -hmm. And we were already at 165. Okay. So as far as that scientific base, the actual anesthesia core items, we were already there. Okay. Did you guys go through a COA approval process at the time that you made the transition from MSN to DMP? And then I know, you know, about a year ago, we also did our reaccreditation. So right. those were two separate processes. Can Ab you tell us? Absolutely. So, and for my for the listeners out there who, the, who are already in education, mm -hmm. they're, they're going to know this. Um, it's considered a major programmatic change. So mm -hmm. the Council on Accreditation dictates that any major programmatic change needs to go through a formalized and standardized review process with the COA. So of course, changing a curriculum is a major programmatic change. Right. So yes, okay. we had to, it's almost like a mini self-study. Okay. Um, and just for example purposes, we also had to 
um, apply to the COA for a major programmatic change that seems minor to mm -hmm. maybe some of the listeners, but it is major, and that is changing the name of your program. Mm -hmm. Because um, in 2013, we changed from UMDNJ to Rutgers when UMDNJ was um, dismantled by our governor at the time. And uh, in order to be called a new name, you have to go through a process with the COA. So that was one of the first. Okay. So my history with the COA <laughs> I say, you've had a lot of is, is uh, I'm going to say very nicely, uh, if, if Dr. Gervasi and his team are listening, <laughs> yes, I have a lot of experience with the COA. It is always, and I really do mean this, I know I'm laughing, but it always ends up as a very valuable experience. So going through an initial COA mm -hmm. um, process to start the program back mm -hmm. in 2004, then we went through mid-cycle evaluation. Um, we got a 10-year from that. Then we had to go through major programmatic change of changing the name. Um, sorry, one before that, we increased the class size from 12 to 24. Mm -hmm. That was another COA okay. uh, process. Name change, doctoral degree, and then finally, we just did the the reaccreditation process for another ten years. So yes, it is. I like to think of myself as an expert on the standards on accreditation, and frankly, every program director out there, right. and for that matter, assistant program director, they're experts. Yeah. Because without that support, and of course, without that accreditation, you don't have a program to come to. And do you have recommendations for? Perspective students should they go to programs that have already graduated a DMP class ideally or should they just look for the program that's best fit for them yeah I think that well first of all you really got to take into consideration your geographics yeah are you willing to relocate mm -hmm. and you know and you know because you and I've spent now three years together yeah. your family is always your primary and you need to do whatever you need to do that will work best for you mm -hmm. and your mental and emotional health. Right. The big picture. Right. So if you have flexibility, mm -hmm. then I say absolutely you you enroll in a doctoral program. At this now however, okay. the the little asterisk to that one is if you don't have that ability and you're you're close to a master's degree granting program, right. go ahead. I will tell you I would try if it were me and what I tell people is try to get into a doctoral program and I'm not I'm not saying anything negative towards any of the remaining master's programs out there but you know I I'm close with a lot of CRNAs and those CRNAs that have master's degrees they're, they're the ones coming to me and they're feeling uncomfortable so at this point if you can just jump into the even deeper end of the pool I say do it so too and I have to say on my job interviews you know I'm graduating in May most of the questions they were asking me at that point was tell us about the DMP tell us about your project um, mm -hmm. what are you doing in terms of research and what did that add you know to your education process so I think people want to know something. that what is this adding yeah and it's adding a heck of a lot yeah it's it's really the answer to that question is really dependent upon how is that question framed right and Hopefully, mm -hmm. it's what you just said. Yeah. But most likely, the question that I get is a little more in-depth. How is it affecting the clinical part of it? Right. How is it affecting your working relationship in an anesthesia care team model? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different angles, and it's, and it's all pretty complex. Yeah. 
frequently asked questions from other educators. When you're going to ASF or ACDE, um, what are other educators who are trying to start or going through this process asking you? They are, and I will go, I will base this answer upon my last direct experience, and that would be from the Congress last year mm -hmm. and from the Assembly School Faculty, which is what it was called this uh, previously previous year. And that is, how are you doing it with all of these projects? That's always the question from an educator. Because more than likely, they've been educators at a master's level. Mm -hmm. And now they're thinking, how am I supposed to continue with the level of service I'm providing my students, mm -hmm. didactically and clinically, and add in the doctoral portion, right. which is papers, projects, what constitutes that level? What constitutes a project that can be a team project? Mm -hmm. How are all of the aspects of a DNP toolkit being met? That's usually the number one question. There's a lot of other ones, yeah, but that's usually the first one. And I wish I had a great response. Mm -hmm. Frankly, it depends upon what my mood is mm -hmm. at that point. Yeah. And the week prior, how many papers did I have to read? Right. So if it was a week prior where I had to read a lot of papers, my answer is usually, it's rough. Yeah. And I will tell you, I think that it is the fatigue moment for educators that are in the transition mm -hmm. to the doctoral degree or have already gone through it, like me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's the time that it takes to support someone like you mm -hmm. with their project. Right. It is a lot of time. It yeah. is a lot of reading. Frankly, at this point, what's limiting us from increasing our cohort size mm -hmm. is not clinical sites. Mm -hmm. It is doctoral, doctorally prepared CRNAs who can come on board as faculty to be a reader someone who could either chair a project right. or be a team member of the project that's really where the fatigue sets in yeah so that that would be the number one question yep. other questions are how is clinical being affected that's yep. an easy one for me to answer it's not um other program directors and other doctoral programs may have a different answer i don't know mm -hmm. how is didactics affected it's not anesthesia didactics are not affected good so I think that just about wraps things up. Thank you, Dr. Polaria, for joining us and sharing your knowledge and experience. We very much appreciate it. Um, and that's about it for this episode. So join us next time. You can also listen to these episodes online at my website, www.graceunderpressurepodcast.com.